Hey, thank you guys for being here. Uh, good to see you. I, I told the first service, man, I was excited to be here this morning because it, was, it is significantly warmer right here than it is in my house. And so I think that's why we went really long the first sermon because I'm like, oh, it's so warm up here. I'll just keep talking. Uh, we won't go quite as long this sermon because I guess it's warming up. But uh, it is great to see you guys. Thanks for coming out. Thanks if you're checking us out, uh, visiting with us, worshiping with us online. Glad to have you online as well. A couple of two quick housekeeping things. And we'll press into it. You've gotten two emails the past couple of 10 days or so from us. And the first has to do with we, we will always want to think about how we can serve our community, serve our church well. What does that look like? What does that look like when we go through different moments in culture? How do we serve each other and serve our town? And so we have available, you know, a couple weeks ago, it was like nearly impossible to find a COVID test kit, right? Some of you sold a kidney to try to get a COVID test kit. Um, <clears throat> that demand, I guess, has kind of gone down a little bit, but we want to be a place that, man, cares for each other, cares for town. And so what we've let you know about is that we have kits available for free. And so if you or a friend or a family member is in need of a testing for some reason, there was a form we sent out that we would love to give that to you and make that available to you. And we also communicate that to the town, right, on all sorts of town Facebook pages that I don't often frequent because my blood pressure goes up. Uh, we tried to put some good news of that we have these test kits available. And the encouraging thing is we've actually gotten uh, more... Uh, feedback and opportunity to serve the town and a bunch of people who don't come to Calvary Church has met a need and shown God's love to them. So we're very excited about the opportunity of done that. And if it's a way we can help you out as well, let us know. Just there's a form we send the email or call the church office or grab one of our team and we'll make sure we talk to you about that. Uh, second thing we did is we sent out a video late last week about some important dates. We're going to continue two services, 9, 10, 45 until February 13th. Our goal and it's our goal. It's getting a little, actually, <clears throat> our in-person attendance is creeping up the past couple of weeks. But our goal is to worship together in one service. Throughout the week, our online attendance remains high as, as you look at the number of people throughout the week who are engaging. And so it allows us in person to hopefully meet together in one body, in one service. And so we're going to continue two services until February 13th. And then on February 13th, we're going to have a 9 o'clock service. And then after that 9 o'clock service, we are going to have a family meeting. It's good news, right? We're not going to give you spaghetti and garlic bread and meatballs this time. But we, we've said this for a while that the elders and the leaders, we're, we want to make sure we're not just, uh, and we're not, but we, wanna, we we got places we want to go. we got things we feel God's calling us to do. And so for, if not a year, man, months and months, last year and actually longer, we've been praying about a vision, <clears throat> working out a vision. What is God calling us to do for this particular purpose? How do we... That's going to involve growing as disciples, and then how do we impact a very specific area around us and love our community and love our neighborhoods. And so we've got some ideas that we want to roll out to you and tell you about and engage you in it. So February 13th, after the 9 o'clock service, we'll have a family meeting where we'll let you know about that. So we'd love for you to come. If you're a member of Calvary, not a member, new to Calvary, been to Calvary forever, we'd invite you to come out to that. Then on February 20th, what we're going to do is we're going to roll out some new environments during this time, right? Again, hoping to worship together in one service. And then at this time, this hour, we're going to have different places for you and your family members to grow. If you want to 
learn some content or be in relationships or grow as a disciple, we're going to have some classes for, for elementary kids, middle school, high school, for adults, for parents, some more relationally focused, some more content focused, but really uh, uh, bringing back some purposefulness in what's required for a person to grow as a disciple and how are we helping one another do that. So want to make you aware of that opportunity. So February 13th, throw in your calendar, love to have you at this hour, and then the 20th we'll kick that off. Uh, so a couple of housekeeping things, and again, <clears throat> we know that we're trying to be wise and uh, trying to keep things moving, get things moving, also realizing, who knows, man, like maybe jumanji Akram will be the next variant that will pause us for a little bit. But uh, we're, we're, those are our plans. Our plans are subject to what happens in the world. God is in charge of everything, and we're just trying to wisely shepherd this church and do what we feel God calls us to do and how to do that. So um, <clears throat> want to make you aware of that. want to make you aware of, uh, of a prayer need that actually came in over the past hour or so. Last Sunday, Luke Chase was up here leading worship, and he's part of our worship team. He's part of the revolving guys throughout the time I've been here have led worship. He does most, 99% of our videography work, so uh, just a, a great guy. And um, this morning, or in the past few hours, I guess, uh, they have a three-month-old infant, I think, who is having some breathing problems and is uh, at the hospital on oxygen, and so there's just some concerns about that. So... Unfortunately, we're a big body with lots of people hurting, and we don't have the opportunity to always pray for everything, but just, just learned that Luke's a face you guys have seen and know, and so I want to pray for him as we move into what God has for us. So the baby's name is Nolan, if you want to continue to keep Nolan in your prayers throughout the day, um, and you know, that, that God will just uh, bring some healing, get the little baby off some oxygen and back home with mom and dad. So let me pray. <clears throat> Father... I do come right now, and we lift up Nolan to you, and I pray for Luke and Chelsea with the anxiety that I know I would have as a parent seeing your small baby be on oxygen and challenges with uh, breathing levels and those type of things. So, Father, we know that you're the great physician. You hold everything in your hand. So I pray specifically right now, Father, I pray for great peace and comfort for Luke and Chelsea, that they will just have a calm of your Holy Spirit and that they can trust you in this moment. And I do pray uh, for Nolan's little lungs and that uh, that oxygen will help and that this will not be an issue at all and things will uh, resolve. And you'll just be with this uh, sweet family and continue to show your kindness and your grace to them. I pray for other folks, Father, who are very ill with COVID. Um, and there's some of those in, who have been in our church, Father. I pray for people who are navigating the loss of someone they've loved and cared about and their grief that they're feeling that your presence, we know you're close to the brokenhearted. And so we pray for those people, Father. I pray for people today who, for whatever reason, the past few weeks, <clears throat> there's just been some anxiety and depression and discouragement that seem to really just burden them and drag them down, that they will bring those things to you, Father, and that in an absolute supernatural way, they will feel your peace and that you will help them see some light and some hope in the midst of those things. And for those, Father, who you've blessed and they're just overwhelmed by your kindness and your favor to them, Father, may that be something that they're expressing thanks to you for and uh, worship of you for the way that you've shown your favor and your hand to them in this season. We come now, Father, because we want to continue to grow to be the people that you want us to be in very real and practical ways, and we're going to open up your word, and I just pray that the Holy Spirit will work through your word 
for your purposes in our hearts today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, uh, in two weeks, we're going to start a brand new sermon series, what we do here at Calvary. If you're checking us out online for the first couple times or even in the building new, um, what we do is we pick a book of the Bible 99% of the time, and we work our way through that book paragraph to paragraph, chapter by chapter. We've been doing that through the book of James, right? And in two weeks, we're going to kick off a new a sermon series. I'm pretty sure it's going to be Nehemiah. I've got Nehemiah scheduled out through the late spring. It's a great book. I'm still praying about it because ultimately we want to do what God wants us to do. Um, but in two weeks, we start a new sermon series. So that means we've got about two more weeks in the book of James. And we got some, uh, I hope, really meaningful things from God in these next two weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about how do we navigate hard moments of life. That's what James is going to talk about. The next paragraph after today's paragraph is going to be about when life is hard. How do you navigate that? How do you <clears throat> process that? How do you steer through that? And then we're going to end up our time in James talking about prayer. When we're praying for specific things, we're praying for healing, or just praying in general, what are some principles we need to know? What do we need to know? So some really helpful, I think, uh, meaningful things coming up in the next few weeks on how do you remain steadfast when you're just walking through that valley in life is next week, and then what are some things we need to know about prayer? Those are the next two weeks in James. But we kicked this thing off September 19th. That was a long, long time ago. We kicked off and started this book of James and part of the reason why we do books of the Bible is we want to be a body that understands more about God's Word. And I want for you and for us that maybe in six months from now you'll be talking to somebody or the book of James will come up in a conversation and you'll be like, oh yeah, I remember some of that stuff, right? We want, when we're done with one of these books of the Bible, my hope, and this isn't just because I'm the guy that does a good bit of the preaching, but my hope is that... When we're done with the book of the Bible, you'll walk away from that study understanding that book a little more. You'll know some more things about who wrote it, why it was written, the structure of the book, the, the context of the book, the big themes of the book. And one thing that is helpful, I think, for all of us to do that is I, tomorrow morning, if you ask me what was your sermon on yesterday, Peter, it probably will take me 44 seconds to think. I'm like, man, what did I preach? And I'm the guy that's preached it twice, right? I, it's very easy for us to hear a sermon, and maybe you liked it, maybe you didn't, but the minute we're out that door, it's like, woo! And I think something that's really helpful for us as a body, and I said this when I got back from sabbatical, I just challenge you to take notes. Take notes. If we want to be a group of people that understand what the Bible's about, one way to help us grow in that and one way for us to be able to resource back to that is, man, we're just, we got to be taking some notes about what, what are we learning out of the book. And the app is a great way to do that. It's really a useful tool. I've had many people who've used it who've said, like, man, this is great. And in the app, we have a section where there's sermon notes that if you're a digital person, you can digitally fill it in. We're going to start bringing back the bulletin in a week or so, and then there'll be a hard copy, a way for you to have some notes areas there. Or if you're like, yeah, that doesn't sound good, look, man, run out to Staples, get you a $4.99 cheap journal. I will even give you a ballpoint pen that barely works if you need a pen. And maybe next time, when we kick off this next sermon series, you take some notes so that at the end of however many weeks we're together in the book of the Bible, you have something to hold on to, whether it's digital or whether it's a hard copy, that you're like, man, I I've learned from the book, I understand the book, and I can use Use this as a resource in coming months or coming years to go back to the book. So as we're finishing up the study on one book of the Bible, uh, this, the book of James, 
Let's just spend a few minutes reviewing kind of what we've seen already, right? We kicked this off September 19th, and we're going to go through three questions just as a purpose of review. And the first question is going to be, who wrote the book of James? Who wrote the book of James? That is a softball question. What do you think? Give it your best college-educated guess. Who wrote it? Yes, James wrote it. If, if you're ever reading the Bible and the book of a Bible has a dude's name in front of it, guess what? That dude probably wrote that book of the Bible. James wrote this book. There's several James who are in the Bible, and this particular James who wrote this book was Jesus' brother. What we shared when we kicked this off is for a period of Jesus' life and James' life, man, James thought Jesus was crazy. Like literally James thought that Jesus had some issues and wasn't all right thinking. And growing up together, it's like, Jesus, man, you're kind of saying some crazy stuff. What's going on? We know that at some point after Jesus' death and resurrection, between growing up with Jesus when he thought he was crazy, there does come a point after between then and Jesus' death and resurrection where James is like, okay, he's not crazy. He's actually the person that he's claiming to be. James became a follower of his brother, a believer of his brother. James became the first, one of the first leaders in the first church that was ever planted. As that church grew and other churches uh, spun off it, James then became kind of this overseer of different churches that were in the region. He was killed for his faith sometime around 62, 64-ish uh, A.D. He was martyred. James wrote, Jesus' brother wrote the book of James. Why did James write this book? Well, when we kicked it off, what we saw is that James wrote this book because he wanted followers of Jesus not just to know the right things, but he wanted to make sure that followers of Jesus were also doing the right things. He didn't want followers of Jesus just to know the right things. He wanted followers of Jesus to also do the right things. And what we said when we launched this was there's There was a sermon that Jesus gave during his life. It's referred to as the Sermon of the Mount, but really, really practical sermon about how Jesus wanted people in his kingdom to live. Jesus' brother, James, in many ways, what he's doing is he's looking around after Jesus' death and ascension to people who claim to follow Jesus, and he's thinking, man, but you guys aren't doing what my brother asked you to do. And there's a lot of allusions and references back to Jesus' sermon that James is pulling forward into his book, and he's saying, remember what my brother told you to do. You guys, I want you to do those things. Don't just know those things. And so what James encouraged us to do, what we've discussed so far, and we'll press through this kind of quickly, um, but the first thing that we kind of talked about, right, was how to rightly navigate trials. When we go through hard times, when we go through trials in our lives, how do we navigate that? Then the next week we talked about the response that we should have to God's word. If you're a follower of Jesus, what's the relationship between this and this? And the spoiler, if you forgot it, was this idea of, hey, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. Don't just hear it, but also do it. Then James gave us some really practical tests, kind of a fill in the blanks to help us figure out how well we're actually doing it. There were some actions or attitudes that are tests for us to know how well we're doing this. That involved whether we had self-control in our speech. Are we people who use angry words, unkind words, hurtful words, right? We're not to do that. Are we sacrificially caring for other people? As followers of Jesus, are we discriminating against other people because of the way they appear to us? That's something we ought not to do, and those were kind of litmus tests to help us know how well we're doing God's Word. Very, very practical things. And then 
we got kind of theological for a minute. We, we dove into this really <clears throat> rich conversation about the relationship between faith and works. And there was this line in James that says, faith without works is dead. And we talked about what does that mean? Does that mean do I need to do good things to believe in Jesus? Well, how do those, those two things uh, react together? Then we pressed into our words and speech. And then we talked about our desires. And then last week, what we did is we saw some really practical truths for as we plan, as we look ahead, as we think about what the future might hold, we saw God's guidance on some things about the future. Some things we should keep in mind as we plan and try to structure our lives, some, some realities as we plan. If either of these, any of these, maybe are where you see yourself today, or you're facing a trial, or you're, you're trying to figure out what is the relationship between God's Word and my life, and maybe you missed that sermon or want it, we have all of our sermons online, and maybe there's some content or a topic on here that when the slush storm comes today, you might want to get in front of your fire and maybe remind yourself of some of those or see what God's word from those has to do with where you are today. Last week, we ended our time as we thought about God's planning and what we need to know about the future. I ended it with a challenge for us as a church, a way that some of us could take what we've heard from the word and practically put it into practice. And the challenge was this. What I said is, hey, for, from last Sunday to today, what it was is find 10 minutes a day and every day for 10 minutes, ask yourself two questions. And the first question was, how can I trust God today? And then the second question is, how can I seek God's kingdom today? How do I seek first the kingdom of God? In my situation, in my moment, what you're going through, the challenge was two questions, 10 minutes every day. How can you trust God? And on that day, what did it mean for you to seek God's kingdom? Some of you may have done it. Others of you may not have done it. Uh, I did it. That doesn't mean I'm a better Christian. It just means I did it. <clears throat> and if you didn't do it, I would encourage you, maybe that's an exercise you want to do these next seven days because it's helpful for us to find ways to take this and then pull what we've heard on a Sunday morning into our lives throughout the week in some practical and some applicable ways. If all you're getting is 45 minutes from some person up here talking on a Sunday morning and that's that you just eat that meal until you come back next Sunday, you're, you're going to be now malnourished. Now, that's not enough of a spiritual diet, just Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. And so you and I need to find ways throughout the week to take what we've heard from the Word and what God's taught us and pull that into our week, into a daily practice, into a discipline that doesn't make God love us more. It's just a way for us as people who love God to try to spend some time with God and continue to pull practical things into our lives. Today, we're going to move into the, the, the text for today, the topic for today. Those are where we've been today. Here we're going. And, and as we move into the paragraph today, here's what I want you to know. As we think about what James has for us, there is an opportunity you're going to hear about today of a way you can serve God. I think many times some of us, we hear, serve God, impact his kingdom do things, and maybe we think about, well, how do I do that? Like, let me read some books about what it means to serve God. Let me read some books about, right, how do I do what God wants me to do? You do not need to read a blog. You need not to read a book. You don't need to go into the woods for 50 days because today you're going to hear something, and you're going to hear that you've already been given something. You've already been given something, and you already have something that you can do something with. That was a way that you can serve God and be used by God and make an impact in the lives of other people. And so the question is, what is that? 
If there's something that all of us have, and for those of us who believe in Jesus, we've been given it and we can use it today to serve God in the way that he wants, what is that thing? And here's the answer. That thing is money, resources, things that God has given to you. Right now, some of you are thinking, I should have stayed home by my fireplace instead of having and listening to this talk about money. This isn't a giving sermon, right? It's it's not a giving sermon. We're talking about this not as a reaction. We're talking about this because this is what the next verse in the Bible talks about. And so what we're going to see, right, today James is going to talk about money, and we're going to hear that as Christians we have this opportunity to do something today with what we have to serve God and love God. We're going to be in James 5, verses 1 through 6. James 5, verses 1 through 6. And so let me read to you the text, and then we'll, we'll pull it out together. <clears throat> Come now, you rich, <laughs> weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Woo, boy, this is getting good, right? Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Man, you're glad you came to church today. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Um, You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So the first thing we have to think about here for a minute, right, with all these words like weep and howl and up, who is James' audience? Who is James talking to? Now, there's some people who think, well, these are kind of harsh words, right? Like James must be talking to non-Christians. Some people will say, well, in this section, James will be talking to non-Christians who aren't part of the church. The problem with that is it just doesn't seem to line up with how James begins this section. Throughout the whole letter so far, James has been talking to Christians in the church. He's not been talking to people out of the church. He's been talking to people in the church, some of whom would have been Christians, most of whom, but maybe not everybody. And the text itself shows that he's continuing that same conversation, that audience. He says, look, come now, you. Come now, you. Okay, when I say to you, you guys need to do this, who am I talking to? Yes, I'm talking to you. If I come up and say, you guys all need to go get a cup of coffee, I am not talking to the people at the Galaxy Diner who right now are drinking a cup of coffee. I am talking to you because you're the ones who hear it. James knew, and this culture, these, this letter was going to be read to the people in the church, and he's already saying, look, the audience is you. He knows the people in the church, the Christians in the church are going to hear this. Those are the people to whom he is talking. James is talking to rich, wealthy Christians in the church. James is talking to people who had money in the church. And he's talking to those people in the church, not just who had money, right? But he's talking to those people in the church, Christians in the church, who had money, but they weren't using their money. They weren't using their stuff in the way that God wants them to do. It's really important kind of to tee this up, right? James and Jesus is not making this broad condemnation about everybody with money. He's not saying, if you have money, you're a bad person. And this sermon 
isn't even saying that money is bad. Money, ready? If you haven't written anything down right now, this is going to be the most, you just need to write this down. This is going to be beautiful. Money is like an egg. Money is like an egg. Have you ever seen an egg? Okay, this freaks me out. I asked the first service too and everybody stared at it. Have you ever seen an egg? Okay, good. I'm about to bring chickens in here next week and like give you a barnyard talk or something. Okay, an egg, right? An egg is a neutral thing. An egg can be used in a great way. You can make yourself a little bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich. You can scramble up an egg. You can make a delicious omelet. You can use the protein of an egg in a helpful and in a good way, right? The, the egg can be used in a good way. Or when that boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you, you can go get to your dozen eggs, find their car, start throwing it at it. That is a bad use of an egg, right? The egg itself is neutral. What, what determines whether the egg is good or bad is not the egg itself, it's the way in which the egg is used. The egg can be used in a good way, the egg can be used in a bad way, but the egg itself, it's neutral. That's the way it is with money. Money is not per se bad and it's not per se good. The thing that distinguishes that and makes the difference is the way in which money is used. There were some incredibly wealthy people in the Bible who used their wealth in incredibly godly ways. They weren't ungodly people. They were people who had some things that used those things in, in ways that God wanted them to use it, right? Like, I mean, a dude like Solomon, it's like, but Jeff Bezos, I don't care how big your super yacht is, it ain't nothing compared to what Solomon had, right? Incredibly wealthy people in the Bible who were incredibly godly people in the Bible. And I think sometimes... We just need to be careful because we can end up on extremes. And one extreme you will sometimes hear is that if you're a Christian, God wants you to be rich. You'll hear that. And, if, and God's goal for every single person is to have all sorts of material blessings. And if you don't have those blessings, it's either because you don't have enough faith or because you're not praying enough. And if you just find the magic formula, then God will make you rich and you'll have your new Escalade and your little yacht and you'll be good. No. Jesus was not rich. Jesus' parents weren't rich. There is no guarantee in the Bible that a Christ follower is going to be a person that has more Apple Watches than they know what to do with. That's one extreme. The other extreme is that being poor is actually the most spiritual thing. And that somehow if you're a Christian that's got a little money tucked away, you're actually in sin and you're not. And, and if you were poor, you'd be more holy. No. There, the issue is not whether we have money or don't have money. Having money is not wrong. Using what you have in the wrong way is what is wrong. Having money is not wrong. Using what you have in the wrong way is what is wrong. You can be rich and you can be godly and obedient. Or you can be rich and you can be ungodly and disobedient. But you can be poor, and you can be godly, and you can be obedient, or you can be poor, and you can be ungodly and disobedient. The barometer of holiness and obedience is not how much you have. The test is what you are doing with what you have. And there is something 
that will determine, that will dictate, that will drive what you do with what you have. There is something for every single one of us, whether we're a Christian or not, that will determine, that will shape, that will guide, that is the the catalyst for what we do with what we have. And, And here's what that thing is. Here's what determines what you do with what you have. Your view of money dictates what you do with your money. What you do with your money, it's driven by this. And this, your view of money, dictates what you'll do with your money. And so let's kind of think about, right? Okay, so what are different views that we can have on money? If our view on money dictates what we do with our money, what is different ways that we can see money? So we're going to talk about three. The first one is this, that we see money as our substitute savior. We see money as our substitute Savior. Now that sounds a little theological, a little churchy, but, but here's what we're saying, right? That you know what a Savior does? A Savior helps us. A Savior rescues us. A Savior takes us out of where we don't want to be, and a Savior puts us where we want to be. And maybe some of us will say, okay, I, I believe Jesus is my Savior, but when life starts to fall apart, or when we want to turn to something to make life happen, what we actually find ourselves doing is turning to our money or our stuff as the thing to save us instead of turning back to Jesus and to our loving Father in that moment. A Savior is what gives us security. When we're feeling insecure, when we're feeling out of control, when we want to feel like we have control and we have security and life is working, we look to a Savior to give us some of that. And some of us may not look to Jesus, but maybe instead what we look to is money. A Savior gives freedom. A Savior allows us to do what we want to do, right? We feel like it's letting us get what we want to get. And maybe some of us look to money or to stuff to do that. Well, We have the opportunity to look at a savior to try to get, okay, my value, my worth, my identity. And for some people, instead of finding those things in what God thinks about us, we turn to money to be the thing that gets us our value and our worth and our identity. And so what we think is, man, if I get me a brand new Cadillac Escalade and there, listen, listen, listen. There's nothing wrong with having a Cadillac Escalade. This is not like a per se, you're in sin. Your heart, we'll talk about this a lot, right? We we don't want to go to extremes, right? But maybe the reason you get a Cadillac Escalade is because you want people to think you're important. You want people to value you. You want people to think you're significant. You're insecure. You need their thoughts about you to give you security. And so you look to some stuff to try to give that to you. And you're buying stuff with money you don't have to impress people you don't know because that's what you're looking to as your functional savior to find your value and your worth and your image and your identity instead of thinking about all of the value that you have because of what God thinks of you. A savior helps us escape something we don't want to be in. And maybe... You turn to money functionally as that savior to help you escape things you don't want to be in. Now, again, we got to be so careful here, right? Because anytime we end up on the extremes of this conversation, we're going to end up in trouble. Ecclesiastes, if you were here, you may remember I exegeted it properly. 
And one of the takeaways from Ecclesiastes was this. Hey, if you've been a good steward of your money and God's given you resources and you're earning those resources well and you want to go out and get a brand new red Ford pickup truck, man, God has given you money to bless you. Go out and get you the brand new red Ford pickup truck, right? That was an application of this sermon, right? Get the double dip ice cream. So if you have a bad day and you're like, man, I just need me a milkshake from Dairy Queen. Just something a little sweet. You're not going to burn in hell for getting a Dairy Queen milkshake, right? Let's not go crazy. But maybe there's this pattern where every time you have a bad day, you don't turn to God at all. You don't try to get simple blessings. You're like, man, I just got to bat my credit card and get something new. If I get a new toy, a new gadget, a new gizmo, then the dreariness of my life or the anxiety I'm facing, I can mask it, I can escape it. And so we just try to get the new, the new, the new, the more, the more, the more to try to get escape because that has become our Savior instead of Jesus. Some of us, the first way we see many is we see it as a substitute Savior. The second perspective, remember how we see our money, our view on money determines how we use our money. Our second view is we primarily see it as something we earned to be used for our purposes. Second view is this. We see money as something we earned primarily to be used for our purposes. What we tell ourselves is, hey, look, you know what, right? Well, you, you might be thinking this yourself. Hey, Smith, I'm sure this will be an interesting sermon, but you know, it doesn't really apply to me. Next week, I'll pay more attention. We talk about valleys. We talk about hard times, prayer. That'll be interesting. But this week, I'm going to zone out because, Peter, here's what you don't understand about me. My family didn't have a lot of stuff. And so I worked hard, Peter. You don't know my story. I worked hard in high school. I was involved in extracurricular activities. I got in a good school. I worked to put myself through school. I studied hard. I got myself a master's degree. Man, I've, or, or I got into a trade and I got into a skill and I've grown my plumbing business. I've grown my electrical business. And I've really made something, but I have what I have because I've worked so hard for it. Yeah, I mean, God's been good, but really, I was the guy that was getting up at 6.30 in the morning to study or to get the job site early. Like, I've put skin in the game, Peter, and so really, I kind of have earned this. And since I've earned it, I can do with it what I want to do with it. The problem is the only reason you were able to earn it is because God has been good or kind or faithful to you to give you the brain that you have. Or to give you the skill set that you have to swing that hammer or do that plumbing or paint that building or grow that business. He gave you the ability to get up and to walk so that you could perform your job. So everything we have ultimately is traced back to God. Right? We didn't like out of the blue just earn something on our own without God giving us the very things we leveraged to earn what we have. Third view of money is this. We see money and our stuff and resources as something that God gave to us for us to steward. That we see money as something that God gave to us for us to steward. Steward means to take care of. Steward means I'm entrusting something to you, but I want you to use it in a particular way that aligns with what I want. Three different views on money. Any idea which is the biblical view on money? Yes, like you've all shouted out at the top of your lungs, three, 
right? Number three is the biblical view on money. Every time you talk about money, you see money, you see God talking about stuff, it always falls into this bucket that's something God gave to us for us to steward. Most of you, some of you may have known that, not everybody. So let me now ask you this, right? The question now is not what is the biblical view on money. The question is now what is your view on your money? Which one of these buckets... If you had to circle one, two, or three, which is the perspective that you have? And if your perspective is you see it as a substitute savior, I mean, you won't say it like that because that sounds like kind of wah, wah, wah. But if that's how you're living, or maybe your perspective is you see it as something you earn primarily to be used for our purposes, the question then becomes, well, why is that your view of money? If this is the view we are to have, and this one or two is the view that we do have, the question is, well, why do you have that particular view? Now, for some of you, it may be like, bro, I've never heard this before. Like some of you literally, either in person or online, may be thinking, I have never ever heard in any environment what the Bible says about money. So I I have one of these views because that's what my parents taught me. That's what my grandparents taught me. That's what my boss taught me. Like I've never heard this perspective. For some of us, maybe the reason we have one or two is because we just didn't know number three. And this will be the first time you get to hear a little bit about it. But there's probably a lot of us in the room who knew that number three is the biblical view. But yet we're still up here for number one or two. And the question of, for you is, why? Why? If we know this is the view God would have us have, why do we then have one or two as our view? And we don't have time to press into that deeply, but if we did get into it, at the root of that, there's probably one or two reasons. If you know this is what God would have you see, but this is what you see, there's probably one or two reasons. One reason could be you just don't trust God. You trust yourself more than God. And to get to this place requires trust. Or maybe if you know this is the place God wants you, but you're up here, it's either perhaps because you don't trust God or you just don't care neither of which are the most ideal places to be. What James is going to do is he is going to then uh, press into in just a minute some different views on money and some different wrong actions on money. He's going to say, look, if there's different views on money that lead to the wrong actions on money, let me tell you three wrong actions that could lead to wrong views, okay? And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talk about. If our view of money dictates what we do with money, then there's some things that we might do with our money that shows, at least to these people, that you guys got the wrong view of money. And for us, these could be warning lights on your dashboard of your life. If you ever had a warning light pop up on the dashboard of your car, if you have, it's not like, (laughs) some of you may think like, oh, look, it's Christmas time and my car has a red light pop up. Look, it's festive. No, that's not festive. It means your car is about to blow up, probably. I went away to Vermont, as I've shared, for a couple of different weeks, a couple of different times of sabbatical. I took my amazing 20-year-old Toyota 4Runner up there, oh, 200 and however many thousand miles with my rusty bumper. Now, on my second leg of the trip, I think it was, I don't remember which way, but I mean, I went one day, I thought I was so cool, I went so far into the 
middle woods of Vermont that like I was off the map of the maps of a logging trail somewhere. I didn't even know where I was. It was awesome. Okay. I, I mean, I didn't have a cell phone that worked. Like I don't, you know, I'd have to do like smoke signals to get people. So Middle of the nowhere woods of Vermont. Car worked great. Next day, I got on the road to come back home, and all of a sudden, I'm driving along, and on my dashboard of my car, this little red picture of my battery light flashes on. Bloop! Now, I'm so glad it didn't flash on in the middle of the woods of Vermont, because I would still be in the middle of the woods of Vermont, and <clears throat> I wouldn't be here today. So I don't know much about cars, but I do know when the little battery light flashes on in the thing, it's probably not the best idea, right? So I am now driving home, still like back in Vermont on kind of back roads, and then it becomes like a really long story, right? Like a MacGyver story, like there's some painters on the side of the road, and I'm like, maybe my battery has a loose wire. So I bartered with them, right? Like I'm like, hey, I've got these product made in Vermont, if you, and it wasn't like weed. I'm not saying that. But I, <laughs> I'm just clarifying, because that's what I would think if somebody all like, I had a product from Vermont. I'm like, man, you should not be smoking that stuff. Okay, so I had non-weed item from Vermont that I bartered. <laughs> this is crazy. That I bartered from these electricians. I'm like, man, if you give me a screwdriver, that. So I tried to fix it. Then that didn't work. Then I went to an auto zone, and this Vermont dude had this multi-tool Gerber tool. He could have, like, rebuilt a Boeing 747 engine with this thing, but he couldn't fix my alternator. So then I went to, like, Betty's transmission shop, and those guys fixed my alternator. And the point was this, that that red light was what started that whole adventure. That red warning light let me know that there's something going on that isn't the way it's supposed to be. And, Peter, if you don't take care of this, you could end up in some trouble. And as we press into these three things, if you see some of these things in your life, they're warning lights for you. There may be in your life with your view of money or your use of money, there's something that God's trying to get your attention so that you get fixed up, so that you work on it, so it doesn't lead you into further problems. And I I think it's important, right, to remember the heart of this sermon and the heart of this text. The heart of this sermon and this text is not to <clears throat> God. It's not to condemn you. It's not to bring guilt on people. It's not to beat people up and make you feel like, oh, God thinks I'm a failure. Peter's saying I'm a failure. It's just a big beat me up with a Bible sermon. That, that's not the heart of this. The heart of this sermon and the heart of God's teaching about money is this: that God wants all of us to grow as His disciples. And God doesn't want you to miss out on an opportunity of a way that he could work in your life. God has given you things. And he is giving you an opportunity to use those things to help further his work in the world around you or to use your things so that you can bless other people. And God doesn't want you to miss out on that opportunity. He doesn't want you to miss out on that opportunity to be used by him to bring purpose and and, and joy. He doesn't want you to miss out on the way that you might be involved in blessing and encouraging somebody else. He doesn't want you to miss out on how he wants to strengthen your trust in him. I don't think I'd be standing on this stage at Calvary Church preaching this sermon If it wasn't for people over the past 20 years who were Christians that have been given some stuff by God who use their stuff 
to bless our family. I've told the story before that when we were in seminary, practiced law, sold stuff, sold houses, sold boats. That was a huge blessing. It got us through a a portion of that. And then we tried to raise some support, and I worked part-time jobs to try to, uh, once the money was gone. And there was this time, I've shared this illustration, where our rent was due or our mortgage was due in the house that we were living in. And when you looked at the bill amount that we had to write with the amount that was in our, our accounts, we didn't have it. And I was stressed out. I mean, imagine your dad of three kids who's gotten rid of everything to move thousands of miles away because you think that's what God wants you to do and you're not going to be able to pay the bill to cover your next house payment. I was worried about it. And, and I've told you how I went to, back then we had mailboxes at our school. I, I went to my school mailbox and I've, I've shared with you how I pulled out an envelope and in that envelope was a check nearly dead on for the amount of money that we needed to pay that mortgage payment from someone who I'd never told about our need, who was a Christian who had some money. And when I thanked him, he's like, you know what, Peter, God just put you on my heart, and I just felt like I was supposed to use this to bless your family. I'm like, bro, that's a blessing. We were early in our pastoral story, and I've told you about our Blueberry, our Chrysler minivan that was leaking gas, and I would literally crawl under it to put duct tape around the gas tank dealio. Somebody heard about this, and they're like, man, successful in a career, and they said, Peter, man, I I got some land. I got about three or four trucks I never need. I I don't use all these. Would it bless your family for us just to give you a Ford excursion? And I'm like... Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. Crawl. I'm and, and we got to be careful because it's not just mortgage payments and forward excursions that are a blessing. There's been times in my story and there's times in your story. And, and man, there's times when there's a single mom who's working three jobs trying to pay the bill and she knows her heating bill this month's going to be about $500. And you know what? You give her a $10 Starbucks gift card, you don't have no idea the blessing that that is. God has allowed this guy to be able to sleep better at night in different moments and to be blessed and to be able to not have to have anxiety over money and focus on ministry that he's called me to do because along the way in our story, when we've had needs in different seasons, there's just been brothers and sisters in Christ who we haven't even told about that, who have been praying about what they can do, who blessed us blessed us. And God doesn't want you to miss out on having that role in somebody else's life. That's the heart of this text. That's the heart of this sermon. That's the heart of everything that God has. God's given you stuff and he's giving you an opportunity to use that in a way that furthers his work or uses that in a way that blesses other people. And he doesn't want you to miss out on that. Does he need you to give 10 bucks to somebody who's having a hard day? Of course not. But man, it isn't amazing to think of the way that he could use you when you choose to do that in the work of his kingdom and the work of other people's lives. And then there's this really amazing verse. If I was a better pastor, I would have put it down or I would remember what it is. But I'm not lying to you about this. Check me on it. See, either in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, I preached on it before. And Paul is writing this, and he's writing back to Christians in that church. And I love this verse. He says to these people, 
hey, if you've been part of that church, Corinth, people in Corinth, and you have financially supported my ministry, what Paul says to those people is, every fruit of my ministry, everything Paul, right, church planner, says everything that God has done through me, if you have financially partnered with me, what Paul tells all of those people is, hey, you get the credit for that too. That is amazing because this is what it means for you and me. Anytime we've given money to support a missionary, the work of that missionary and any fruit that that missionary does, anything that God does through the life of that missionary and the ministry of that ministry, missionary, if you've supported them, God gives you the credit for that too. That means if you've given money to Calvary Church and you support God's work here, that means that the family who's come who said, you know what, man, I came one time and you guys gave my kids candy at Halloween. I came another time and you guys had this amazing summer camp for my kids. And now we started to come as a family. And I didn't know anything about the Bible. But I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm excited. My kids believe in Jesus. I'm trying to figure it out. And the way that that family is transformed because what God has allowed to happen to them through their time here. If you have given money to Calvary Church, you know what that means? That means you get the credit for that as well. That's cool. Because God does amazing stories of life change through local churches and through people who are serving God and through different ministries. And you have the opportunity to partner with that. And God doesn't want you to miss that. So, what might be some warning lights on your dashboard of your life to let you know that you have wrong actions towards money that show a wrong view of money? Three of them. Here's the first one that James says, he's talking again to these rich Christians who are using their money in the wrong way, and here's what he says is one wrong use of that money. He says this in um, 2 to 3. Yeah, that's that's how we'll press into that. Um, He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Your riches have rotted, garments are moth-eaten, gold and silver have corroded. What? Most scholars think James is doing is there were three things in that culture in that day that would let you know you had a lot of cash, right? How much food you could put on your table. Like, man, if you were going out to like Joseph's Steakhouse every night, you were loaded. You were good. Your clothes and your money. Those three things were indicators of your wealth. And so what, what most people think is James is kind of like picking away at each one of those in the wrong way that the people are using those. First, your riches have rotted. Most people think that this word rich is actually, it's not gold and silver. He thinks he's actually just talking about food here. That people, those rich Christians in this church, man, they had more food than they knew what to do with. They were able to put food on their table all the time, and they just kept getting more food and getting more food and buying more food. But over time, they, they weren't eating that food. They weren't giving away that food. And so that food that was just sitting around, it rotted. It rotted. Have you ever seen rotten food? It's not that tasty, right? My, I love bananas, love bananas. I, I like the bananas that, that I, I want one that's got a little bit of green on the outside of that peel, right? I didn't, once that banana gets even the slightest muchado, that's mushy for you non-Italians. And I'm not Italian, but I like to speak Italian. That's about the only Italian I have. I have others, but I won't speak that from the stage. Okay. <clears throat> I, I like it when it's firm. When it gets a little mushy, ugh, I don't like it, right? 
I constantly have with some of my daughters this running conversation because I'll go through and we have a little fruit basket or whatever and I'm like, oh man, guys, we gotta get rid of these bananas. And they're like, why, dad? And I'm like, well, because the bananas are supposed to be kind of greenish or yellow, but these are starting to get like a little brown, like they don't look so good. And they're like, no, dad, those bananas are fine. And I'm like, they ain't fine. They're like brown and they're starting to ooze this banana pus. And they're like, no, dad, we will use those to make banana bread. And I'm like, ain't nobody want no banana bread with no rotten, nasty bananas, right? They claim they're right and I'm wrong, but I don't believe it, right? Food, when it gets rotten, isn't any good. It can't be used for the purpose in which it's attended. The next thing is this garments are moth-eaten. These people just kept buying more and more and more clothes to show how wealthy they are. And they didn't wear them. They didn't need them. They didn't use them. They didn't give them away. And they just kept them and kept them and kept them. And over time, what happened is little teeny moths went in there and nibbled away at them. And now they have a whole bunch of clothes that cost them a whole bunch of money that they didn't need to begin with that now have a bunch of holes in them. They don't do them any good. And then he talks about, okay, your, your physical cash, right? Your gold and silver have corroded. Obviously, gold can't corrode, but the image here is think pirates of the Caribbean or Caribbean, whichever your present pre- pleasure is. Think you open up that treasure chest, and there's the gold and there's those diamonds, but there's all cobwebs over them. There's like all this dust. There's little roaches scurrying because those treasures have just been kept in that basket and they've never been used before. What, what James is talking through these different images and what God is rebuking is people who are hoarding what God has given to them instead of generously using and giving away what God has given to them. See, your stuff, your money, your resources, my stuff is something that God has given to you and is supposed to pass through your hands to be used for his purposes. But what these people were doing is, man, they were just closing their hands and they were holding on to it as tight as they can till their knuckles were white. Let's not go crazy here. Should we save money? Yes. I'm not saying that every single thing you get you need to give away. I'm not saying make yourself homeless, right? I'm saying use your money wisely. Save it the way Scripture says. But ultimately, the things that God has given to you are things that are supposed to pass through your hands to be used for his purposes. But what these people were doing is they're like, nope, I'm going to grab onto it and I'm going to hold it and I'm not going to let anything go out. And so the question becomes for us, are we hoarding things that God gave to you that he wants you to use for his purposes? Are you hoarding things that God gave to you that he wants you to use for his purposes? The, the, now, right here, we, we got to be careful, right? Because what some of us would want is we'd want a bullet point list. Well, I don't know, Peter. Why don't you tell me? Give me some things that I shouldn't do. Like, <clears throat> okay, so if I have three Apple Watches, is that bad? At the, the last point, this is a spoiler alert, the last thing we're going to see is that one of his criticisms of them is that they spend for their own luxury, right? And again, some of us are going to want bullet points like, well, what does that mean, right? So if I have two Apple Watches, am I hoarding things, right? And, and some of, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. When we're talking about spending luxury at the very last point, there's going to be a screen that looks like this with no bullet points for what that means for you. Because for some of us, for some of us, is it wrong to have a vacation home? No. 
Is for some of us, might it be wrong to have two vacation homes? No, maybe. For others of us, it might be wrong. Yeah. See, every, I don't know in your story what is a right or a wrong use of your money. I don't know in your story what is a way that God wants you to steward your money. That is something that you need to get before God and find out about. And, so, and it's going to look different for every single one of us. For some of us to have three Apple Watches would be the wrong thing to do. Maybe for others of us, it's a fine thing to do, but it's different for every single one of us. And so the question for you, and if you don't know the answer, it's something to come before God. Are you hoarding the things that God gave to you that he wants you to use for his purposes? Next problem, and we're almost done. We'll get through this quick. The next problem is this in verse 4, the second wrong action that shows the wrong view. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. This is these rich dudes were farm owners. And they brought poor people and said, hey, I need you to mow my lawn. I need you to get my hay. I need you to do this work and I'll pay you for it. And you know what? When the work was done, these rich dudes were like, oh, sorry, I'm not going to pay you anymore. Sorry. (laughs) It's like, Bro, these are people who are getting money or holding on to their money through unethical ways, through deceit, through fraud. James expounds on this later in verse 6, and he says this, You have condemned and you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. He's probably being exaggerative here. He's probably being hyperbolic. These rich dudes weren't actually murdering the poor people, but what he's saying is, look, if you've got people who are living paycheck to paycheck and they've worked for you, and if you've not paid them, at some point, rich dude, they ain't going to be able to buy food for their family. And if people can't buy food for their family, you take that down the line, and because of your dishonesty, because of your fraud, because of your unethical obtaining money or keeping money, it's as if you're going to end up murdering them. The wrong action here is people acting unethically to get money or gain money. And the question for you is, are you acting unethically or dishonestly in order to get money or hold on to money? This one, maybe there are some things that are pretty clear examples of this. If you're a guy who, or a lady who bills your time, if you're an attorney, if you're a CPA, Are you billing your hours honestly? And I know your world because I spent a good bit of my world, man, it was all about the billable hours. And if you told that client that you worked out 15 minutes on their case or their project, did you? Did you? If you're an hourly employee and you write down your time and, man, when you say that you are working and you are on the clock and you're saying that I'm working for that hour, are you? My sources tell me that April 18th this year is when taxes are due. Don't sue me if it's not 18th. I think it is. And what if God audited our taxes? What if God audited our taxes? Are you acting unethically or dishonestly in order to get money or hold on to money And if you are, you're not doing what God wants, and you're missing out on an opportunity to use the money in an ethical way for the good of his kingdom. And then the last concern is this third question. Here's the thing these guys aren't doing well in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. 
You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, this, this phrase, living in luxury, means, man, these people were just pursuing all the luxury they could get. And never once were they thinking about how they can use all their stuff to help other people. Self-indulgent, right? They are unwilling to give anything up for the good of other people. Don't go to extremes. This is not saying that if you ever stay in a Ritz-Carlton, you're in sin, okay? I, we just need to really be careful because for some of you, that's totally fine. God's cool with you staying in the Ritz-Carlton, right? It's not saying that having a nice thing is bad. It's saying if you're chasing after nice things and chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing and never once thinking about or never once willing to use what you have for the good of other people, that might be a warning light on your car. And so the question then becomes this are you buying more and more fancy stuff that you do not need and ignoring what others need? I, I don't know. That's between you and God. But God knows. But here is one thing that I, I do know. <clears throat> Go on the way home. Here's an experiment. Right? Some of us, man, we have so much fancy stuff. Go on the way home to Goodwill. When you go to Goodwill, there will be a TV somewhere in that Goodwill that will be for sale for like 20 bucks. At some point in the history of the world, that TV that is a big, huge square that weighs about 700 pounds, man, that was the biggest and the brightest thing to do, have, right? At, you know those big console TVs? You know what I'm talking about? Like it's the size of my truck, right? Like those whole console deals. I'm just telling you, I was growing up with a kid in the 70s, and when you saw somebody who had that their console TV, you're like, ooh, old boy's got him some money. Because, man, there's nothing better than a TV that's like the size of a dresser with its windows. You open. If you go to Goodwill, they will give you $100 to take that thing away. I've had those big square TVs that I have put on the side of the road for free. And people are like, bro, they're like throwing it back in my window, right? But at some point, that item, man, that was luxury. Somebody spent a lot of money for that item because that was the thing. And you know what? It's now sitting in Goodwill for 10 bucks and they'll give you 10 bucks. Because it's not that luxurious anymore. And at some point... Most of the stuff that in this moment is luxury, you know what's going to happen to it one day? It's going to end up in goodwill. Your kid's going to take it to the dump when you try to give it to them and they don't want it. You're going to put it in your attic, and then at some point when it doesn't fit in your attic, you're going to get a storage unit for it and you're going to forget about it. Or it's going to end up on eBay. So it's going to happen. At some point, that luxury item that you're Using your stuff to get right now, it's not going to be luxury. It's going to end up at Goodwill. It's going to end up in the dumper. It's going to be on eBay. And all God is saying is, hey, maybe don't chase some things that in five years are going to be on eBay. Maybe use the stuff I've given you for the good of other people and for the good of God's kingdom. I'm going to invite the worship team up here. I'm sorry we've gone a little long today and we'll be shorter next week, maybe but it has been warm on stage and I'm living off of Calvary's heat and not my own heat. <clears throat> Part of your growth as a disciple of Jesus is your faithfulness of your money as a steward of Jesus. Part of your growth as a discipleship of Jesus is your faithfulness and your stewardship of money for Jesus. And if today God has pricked your conscience and if today you felt a little uncomfortable, then man, get with him. And pray and seek what he would have you do about it.
But here's what I would challenge you to do. Act in accordance with the whole theme of the book of James. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer. And be a doer even when it comes to what God has given you. Let me pray. Father, I pray that um, right now you will make clear to some of us in the room what you would have us do with some of what you've given to us. I pray that for some people right now in the room, you will give clarity to how you want them to be using their things. I pray for others. You will just deeply impress upon their hearts a need that they could meet or maybe somebody that you're just putting their name on their hearts of a way that you want them to bless that person, Father. Help us to understand that this use of money has to do with how much we trust you and help the Holy Spirit to let us know how amazingly trustworthy and how amazingly good and how amazingly kind you are. Amen.